man. Hey, well, you brought a baby. Yeah. I brought a muffin for us to share. So. Hey, that's great. Well, how's your day been? What's it What's it look like? Good. I uh, I teach intro to Bible on campus. Yeah. So I just had that. I've taught it the last four semesters. How many classes do you teach on campus? Just this one. And then I, I teach one at NTC. Co-teach it. Manchester. Manchester. Because I am a graduate with my MA from NTC Brisbane. Yes, I know. The forgotten, the forgotten NTC. I want to talk to you about your journey as a young adult, yes. as a college student, yes, as a human being um, in general, your holistic uh, experience. And I want to hear about what you're currently doing and engaging with college students and young adults. Then I want to hear about how you started thinking about going to Germany, what you did in Germany, and coming back from Germany. And then that'll bring us back to present day. Because how old are you? I'm 29. 29. So you're on the upper end of young adultish. You're leading, doing all kinds of different things in engaging in young adult ministry, leading leadership, pastoring. So right now, I serve at Nampa College Church as the executive pastor, which has meant a lot of things over the last year. Uh, but one of the things that I've been thinking about is just how do we develop and advance ministry? Um, so how do we kind of cultivate our different ministry areas and get them working together? And when I stepped into the role, uh, obviously, as Nampa College Church, college is important to us. And being by NNU is important to us. And we have some good college offerings. But we didn't really have uh, anything for young adults specifically, uh, or at least what had been for young adults kind of needed some rejuvenation. And then I had just been thinking, uh, my wife's a resident director at NNU. And I teach in the, as an adjunct in the religion department, intro to Bible, and just noticing the increasing amount of students who aren't Nazarene and who aren't really Christian or they're deconstructing their faith. And just trying to think about what kind of space can we create uh, to share the gospel, to help people regain confidence in the gospel. And I know for a lot of young adults going into our big church building, doing something more programmatic isn't appealing or accessible. And so I had been a part of a young adult group that met uh, downtown in Nampa and loved that space. And that space had been really effective uh, at Real Life Community Church for young adults. And so the opportunity opened up to do something there again, much later. And we decided we would kind of create a space that was aimed toward young adults who weren't in the church weren't maybe part of the Nazarene orbit. Um, that could still be a place for young adults on staff or Nazarene young adults or college students or whatever, but trying to orient it toward uh, people that we often miss in the Nazarene church. Uh, so young adults who have no backgrounds with us and really targeted toward young adults who are exploring faith or not sure about faith. So we've been working on that for six months. We started it. It's called Downtown. And that's been a lot of my work uh, the last six months, six to nine months, uh, is trying to develop that space. And we're starting to gain some consistency, but we're still definitely in a phase of starting and building a core group and refining how we just use that space, who we invite and all of that. Uh, but it's been fun. We've had some really, really big nights, had some small nights. Um, we've had a good amount of NNU students, but getting more and more students who are outside of that orbit and more and more young adults who maybe uh, didn't grow up in the Nazarene church or wrestling with faith. So that's been exciting and we want to keep 
pressing into that, pressing into that direction. So that's what I'm up to right now. I think with young adults leaving the church or deconstructing their faith, specifically the young adults who've grown up in in the church. And a lot of our churches, not all of them, and not just in the Nazarene world, part of the trends in the U.S. is we, we're struggling to evangelize. We're struggling to see people make decisions for Christ and experience life change. And I think there's a lot of young adults who are leaving the church. And the real reason is they've actually never seen the gospel work. Mm. They've never seen the gospel do what the gospel is meant to do, which is kind of be like a meteor, meteor that creates a create a crater in our lives and changes us and hits us and turns us upside down. And they've never seen that happen, really. Uh, they've maybe had a camp high or they've had good experiences, but they've never seen right the gospel rock someone. I think some of them are leaving the church because underneath all the questions or the busyness, they're just convinced or not convinced that this works, that this actually can do what it we say it can do. And so I think one of the biggest things that young adults growing, growing up in the church need is they need to see the gospel rock someone and turn someone's world upside down. They need to watch that happen. They need to be around that. They need to be in a space where it's not just people like them, but it's people who are deeply in need of grace, of Jesus. And I love uh, one, one pastor, uh, a church I follow, not a Nazarene church. They have a lot of people come from a church called Holy Trinity Brompton, uh, which created the Alpha Course, which is what we're running at downtown. Kind of a non-coercive, conversational way of doing evangelism, been used really widely in the last five to ten years. And this pastor is talking about all of these people who come from Holy Trinity Brompton. They come to New York for some um, right job or a move or whatever, and just saying that these are the best people. These are the best Christians he's met, the best disciples he's met. And the biggest reason is because they're constantly around people who are meeting Christ. Mm. And they're constantly re-experiencing their own conversion, re-experiencing their own baptism. When you have a bunch of people meeting Jesus, which none of us are fully in control of. I think we're in control of making the environment where God can do that. We're not in control at all or even able to make it happen but we can create the space um but they're constantly around that and when you have people who are meeting christ there's really no room for a christian to be a passive observer you need them to jump in you need them to teach you need them to lead a small group and it creates some of the best christians and so he was just talking about that that was the theme like the best people that they get from over there are the people who were constantly getting called in to take care of new people who'd met Christ. And so I think one of the reasons we're losing young adults is when you don't see the gospel doing, you don't have to cut this out. When you don't see the gospel doing what the gospel is meant to do, church is kind of boring. I don't mean in the sense of we need a fog machine and good music. I don't think that's what makes a church exciting. Right. Um, that's why a lot of churches with fog machines and big stages have a ton of turnover. Um, what makes what makes the church exciting is Luke four, the oppressed going free, the blind yeah. being able to see, um, people entering the liberty and grace of the gospel. That's what makes church exciting, which could be like no fog machine, no music, nothing, um, but that life change. And I think if we're not abiding in that, we're not pursuing it, we're not seeing it. It's not that church loses relevance; it just 
I think people begin to think that this actually doesn't work. And so I think the biggest thing, obviously, that young adults who aren't Christian need, they need a safe space to explore Jesus. I think the biggest thing that young adults need in the church is obviously to experience God and to know God, but also to see God change people's lives and to be on the journey of seeking that for others. Um, I know for us in our experience in Germany, that was the biggest thing that motivated Christians who'd grown up in the church to join us in our church was that we were actively orienting everything we did and all of our money and all of our time around that. Mm. How can we welcome in the hurting, the poor, and offer them food and water, but also offer them Jesus and see Jesus change their lives? And those stories of transformation build people up in their faith. So this is a little bit of a soapbox, but that's part of why orienting downtown toward people who aren't Christian is probably one of the best things we could do for people who are Christian. Because we need to we need to be reminded that the gospel works. I think I think a lot of people don't think it works because they haven't seen it do what it can do. And so the deconstruction is a what I thought I believed isn't actually real. And so I don't know if I should right. believe it anymore. Right. Because if the gospel, if like Orthodox evangelical faith is just the parameters for a club, it's maybe not right. The gospel isn't convenient to believe, right? It's really inconvenient to believe these things. It's really disturbing. It's not the best charter for a club. The reason that we believe these things is because we believe that when we tell the story of Jesus and we live the way of Jesus, God should change the world around us. And so when we're not seeing God change the world around us, when we're not creating space for the spirit to do that through the gospel, then these things become really abstract and they be, they're, they're just inconvenient to believe if they don't work, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, believing that all people are broken by sin is not a fun thing to base your club on unless it's real, right? And because we're not faced with the reality of the gospel, because um, we're often not making space for it, that becomes the impetus for deconstruction. Whereas even if you're wrestling with these things, but you see, you see Luke 4 happening, right? You see people, you see it happening in front of you. Um, then it's not really about whether it's convenient or inconvenient. It's I'm experiencing it and it's real and it's working. Even if it challenges me, even if there's doubts, I'm willing to stay with it because it is transforming people. So, right? And one, I think, yeah. One of the 23 year olds inside of me um, has no idea what the word gospel means or what you're really yes. talking about. The other yes. 23 year old has tried to explain to him um, and has done a really poor job. So right. explain to explain to the 23 year old that has no point of reference besides hearing Jesus' name in one way or another about when you talk yes. about the gospel and what, that it's actually real. How do you what are you talking about just demonstrating what it is through your actions and community or what is the what is the actual verbal like gospel message that you would share with a 23 year old that has no points of reference with faith i would simply say the way that i've talked about the gospel with people who don't have that background is in and through the person of jesus of nazareth we can find reconciliation with the creator god and in being reconciled with the creator god we can become people who reconcile people together and who reconcile the creation 
to why God made it in the first place. And so it's that sense of I can reconnect with the very person I was made for in and through the person of Jesus. And it's in telling that story of Jesus It's in telling right all the way from his birth, his being sent, death, resurrection, ascension, the whole thing being wrapped up in what I mean by the word Jesus. When we tell that story and when we embody it and when we do it, then God works through that. That's the medium for how God works in the world to bring people back to himself. So I'd I'd simply say the gospel is just simply Jesus, but more broadly, it's that in Jesus, we can reconnect with God and we can find the things that we have been looking for. Those holes or gaps in our heart, the places in our life where we are totally unfulfilled, which often it's those holes in our heart. It's those places of unfulfillment that lead us to treating people poorly. So when God fulfills them in Christ, when we can find new life there, we'll actually be filled up so we can love others in the way that we are made to. For whatever reason, God has decided not really even to through a lot of theology, but when you look at the gospel of Acts, they don't offer a ton of theology. They just tell the story like this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And then when they tell that story, people's lives change. And so I think it's helping people engage the story of Jesus, helping people come alive to who he was and what he did and what he said. And that being the strange way in which God has decided to recapture the human heart. So I'm, conf- I'm confused because I haven't heard any bad news in the good news that you were just sharing. And often yes. people lead with bad news to get to the good news. That's true. And I think one... One thing that I learned being in a post-Christian context for a long time was most people who are on the outside of the church, most people who have left the church will only grapple with the bad news if they've grown convinced of the good news. Hmm. That is not to say that people shouldn't wrestle with their sin or brokenness or whatever word we want to use. That's super important. Um, It's kind of just important as a human being, whether you're not a Christian to be aware that we're broken and we need help, right? Um, Even in like secular culture, whether that's mental health or emotional health or physical health, people really want to help people know if they're broken or not. Um, That's not just a Christian idea. Um, But for, you know, for instance, like the apostle Paul, He says that before he encountered Jesus, he had no idea that he was not doing well. Something we, it's not like Paul felt really guilty about all of his sin, was super convinced of his brokenness, and then met Jesus, and Jesus was the solution to that problem. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then looked back at his life and realized what he was missing. And I think in a a culture dominated by the church, we can kind of go from the problem to the solution. So let's convince people they're really sinful, so they need Jesus. I've just found in like post-Christian context right now, where people are really unconvinced of their brokenness, or they don't want to have a concept of evil or sin, that it's actually the experience of being loved and accepted by Christ, and uh, really being fulfilled in their emptiness, that they then begin to look back on their life and see, oh, I was actually deeply in need. So actually, um, and there's a whole kind of theological trail to this, but it's actually the solution that reveals the problem. Mm -hmm. It's actually the love of God for us and what 
is offered to us in Christ that sheds light on our sin and brokenness. And so often if we start with sin, we're going to get into an argument with people. But if we start with grace and people accept that and they start with the love of God, then they're going to come to a place of realization of their brokenness because they're going to realize what they were living without for the whole time. But unless, unless you cast an imagination for people in a post-Christian world of what life can be like, the post-Christian culture we live in tells you that the status quo is the good life, right? Hanging out with my friends, having a good job, having money in the account, brunch on a Sunday, um, right? Drinks with friends, all like that's the good life, right? We've, we've found a way of building what feels like a good life without God. And when you show people the depth of what they can have in Christ, that's when they begin to realize what culture told them is the good life is actually missing something. Whereas if I come in and I tell people they're sinful, they're going to look around at their life and say it's pretty good mm -hmm. if I lead with that. But if I lead with what can be given to them, so the positive element of the gospel, of the depth of knowing God and the beauty of being filled with God's love, of being enabled to love even your enemies, then often that will allow them to think oh, what I thought was the good life is not actually as good as I thought it was. Mm. And I think in the church, in some context, in the Nazarene church and in North America, we're still preaching the gospel as if it's to Christians who just need to get reinvigorated. Um, whereas we're not treating our young adults as having already been deeply shaped by that post-Christian world. And I think that's a missing piece. Yeah. So wow. I, I want to lead with the goodness, right? And that's also yeah. scripture. Scripture is super aware of human brokenness. And that has to be a part of our preaching. And to some extent, the gospel doesn't make sense unless you realize there's a problem. And yet scripture on page one starts with the goodness of creation, starts with the goodness of what it means to be human. And unless you have the imagination of how good it is to be human, you're never going to think that your Western post-Christian life is actually bad unless someone tells you what you're missing out on. So appreciate the, the depth of your heart and reflection on this. Tell, tell me about getting to Germany. Tell me about, I yeah. mean, you, you, you've referred to it a couple of times and what you're sharing here, right. but tell me, I, I watched from the outside from, from very distant relationally and I want right. to hear your story of how did the Lord lead and guide you to Germany? What happened there? And and then and, and how did you come back? Yeah. So just very briefly, when I was 17, had an experience, felt called the ministry. Um, my original plan for my post high school life had been uh, to try and find a place to play community college baseball. Um, I didn't have any vision for my life after that. So I'm really glad God called me to ministry because um, I really was not sure of where my life was going or what I was going to do. And that gave me a lot of purpose. So I ended up at NNU. I grew up in a Baptist church. I found out what a Nazarene was like the third week of classes. Really, really did not, you know, landed on an alien planet to some extent. Um, and uh, had my struggles with it. and. When I was about 19, I began to ponder whether I was called the youth ministry 
or whether I was called to be a missionary. I just kind of discovered the global church in reading and the persecuted church and just became fascinated and realizing that there's so many places of need uh, and then looking around and realizing how much we have here. Um, and so I, got, I became really, really um, just obsessed with the global church and mission work and fascinated by it, fascinated with the concept of mission of being sent into the world. My wife, uh, also someone who's super interested in other cultures and other places. And so we began to think we would love to go move somewhere and help uh, in the global church and had thoughts of the Middle East or Europe. And then when we got married was in 2015 when Germany welcomed over a million refugees from Syria and Iran and Afghanistan. And I just remember reading it with her and just thinking like, man, I wish there was something we could do. Uh, just feeling really, really overwhelmed by it. And um, that next year, I had applied to be the youth pastor at my church I grew up in in Seattle. Um, I had escaped NNU without fully wanting to be a Nazarene. And I got shot down for that job. Um, by the pretty, grace of God. By the grace of God. I was fully set on it, had all these ideas. And it kind of came down to, we don't think you can pull off like the programming event. Essentially, it felt like we're not sure if you're going to be cool enough or well organized enough. Okay. Is kind of the message I received probably in my immaturity. And this kind of sent me to this like, oh man, like I thought ministry was going to be, I'm going to go study. I'm going to go back to my home church. I'll do youth ministry. They'll send me out to plant a church that like, that's the pathway I imagined. And so I felt like, wow, that got disrupted. And now I don't really know where my tribe is, what I'm a part of. Um, I was working with Young Life at the time. Um, just part-time though, and just wasn't sure where to go and went up to the Young Life Camp in Canada for a month to do what they call work crew and got back in the first Sunday back. I wasn't going to go to church, was very tired, very moody. And we actually went to where we host downtown now. Uh, there was something called encounter movement at the time and, um, and Philip Zimmerman who's a German pastor in the Nazarene church, uh, was just kind of impromptu last minute invited to preach. And they had begun to invite some Americans to come and help with the work in Germany. They'd planted a, a, a network of uh, Nazarene churches called Church in Action or Kirche in Action. And uh, he just shared this vision and they were just living out this incarnational missional vision for church. And as he was preaching, my wife and I just looked at each other and both felt like God was telling us to go. Just a very overwhelming sense of God's presence and almost like someone had lit my heart on fire. What sometimes feels like a typical sending moment in like very cheesy missionary stories. Like your and heart was just strangely really, warmed. My heart was strangely microwaved. <laughs> uh, it was it was on fire and so we went up to him and 
said, when do we leave? And uh, they wanted people to come in like a month. And we were like, that's not going to happen. But pretty much every like everything that we needed to work out worked out. Um, everything we needed to work out. And so that was July of 2016. And we were in our apartment in Frankfurt in January of 2017, wow. where my wife finished her bachelor's at NNU online. I and didn't know she so, didn't finish school. Wow. That's no, she didn't. Yeah. So um, we we jumped at it and uh, ended up there in five months after we met him. Um, uh, so it was okay, a little just crazy. A, just pause here. I just pulled up your Facebook uh, messenger. October 3rd of 2016, I was trying to recruit you guys for youth admission. Do you remember that? I October 3rd, 2016. Yeah. And you guys said, Taylor and I have decided to do extreme Nazarene and would love to send you a letter of support. What's the best address for you and your family? Good job. That's classic. I still do that, but that's classic me. Hey, yeah. no, I'm not going to do your thing, but do you want to give me 50 bucks a month to do my thing? I might not have tried to recruit you guys. I I, I don't know, but I can't. I remember, I remember being at that camp and being around all of you and the travel team there and going, yes. I wonder how many of these people want to do youth admission. And I just got yeah. hired. Like, yeah. as of, like, I will actually, when I did that camp, August 1st was my first start date with doing youth admission. And so I was right. like, I was, I was on the prowl too. Like, you got to ask. If you don't ask, you don't know. You know, shoot your shot. Right. But, um, I'm going to start bouncing now because the baby please, needs to be held. Please do. Yeah. So, okay. So let me, let me make sure I caught what, what you were saying. So it was a six month turnaround from the time that you met. It was Philip, right? Yeah. I think we met him like July 16th or 17th. And by then January, you were in Germany. And January 13th, we flew over there. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's five and a half, six months, but that's a lot yeah. of things happening with, yeah. with like, um moving and finances totally. and visas and trying to figure out the schooling that she's going to be finishing off and like blah 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 yeah. i mean you're a perfect time of life to do something like that and figure it out and live in that fray but dude it's a lot it's a lot yeah it was we were because at the time extreme was its own nonprofit, but you had to become a volunteer of global mission with an denarium yeah so we had to like we had to pay to go to Ohio to do a cross-cultural orientation to get approved. And we like went to encounter and said, Hey, we need like $1,100. They brought us up one night and we got like $20 more than that. Like we, it, it was just like all of the things that could have just like stopped it in the mud. Uh, were just like slicing through butter. It was just like, Wow. Everything that felt like it would be this huge challenge was like, frankly, just felt easy. And we actually didn't get approved until October. So we couldn't start raising support. We had to raise our salary and some one-time money. So we only had two months to raise at least 80%. Um, at the holiday time. At the holiday time. And somehow it happened. Um, and... Uh, I was like cold calling people I met once and being like, Hey, uh, Tom, haven't talked to you in four years since I went on the camping trip that my brother invited me to, uh, do you want to help me with this? And literally some people I cold called still support the church 
with like $200 a month, even after wow. we left. And I, so it was like all these people, <laughs> I remember one day I was in the car and I was like, we need 500 more dollars a month. And I just started calling, cold calling people and like raised it in the car. So it was just like, it, it, it just felt so much like God was working on it and mm. we weren't alone and everything we needed we got right when we needed it. Uh, and that is a, that's a big confidence builder when you're young and you're taking a risk mm -hmm. and seeing God show up like that was really invigorating for our faith. Um, so, yeah. So we wound up in Frankfurt. And what did that look like there? What did, what did mission and yeah. in life look like there? Church in action was trying to plant essentially uh, what we would call like church type missions of the nazarene church um so not all of the bells and whistles of a local church but essentially congregations that are living missionally doing compassionate ministry so at that time they had four in the frankfurt metropolis there's two rivers in germany that kind of intersect in the frankfurt metro um the rhine river and the mine so the area is called the rhine mine and they're trying to plant churches along those cities that follow the river in kind of that mid Midwest part of Germany. Um, and so we moved to Frankfurt and part of it was, we're just gonna help in any way, especially with the refugee ministry. And then there was a bunch of young people who had started leading with no ministry background. So we were all going to do a master's together at Nazarene Theological College in Manchester. So it was like a ministry cohort mm -hmm. who was kind of leading church in action um, and then also studying together. So two weeks in, we're living in Frankfurt and the immediate need that they had was that we would drive this big U-Haul uh, sized van called the Spielmobil, the Playmobil. Yeah. And it was a gift from World Vision for uh, Church in Action to do work in different refugee camps. So they had a partnership with one or two refugee camps in all of the cities we were in. And so it was our job at first, starting after two weeks, um, it was our job to get the van to every camp uh, for the time in which people from that specific Church in Action were going to the camp. So um, we did like well over 100 refugee camp visits. Well, that was our job. Um, so two camps in Frankfurt, a camp in Mines, uh, that ended up being another camp, and then um, a camp in Darmstadt, which is south of Frankfurt. And so we we were driving for that. Um, and then you just begin to realize when you're young and you have energy and you have some ministry gifting and you're in the mission field, it's kind of like rather than this kind of gradual training, it's let's, you know, throw you in the cold water. Um, and uh, so in the midst of all of that, um, Church in Action had worked with a Pakistani evangelist, who I cannot say his name in the internet uh, for safety reasons. But um, this person was evangelizing like crazy and leading a lot of Iranian and Afghan men and women to Christ who'd wow. come as refugees. So they asked me, my first sermon in Germany was from English into Farsi in, or English into, I think English into Farsi. And it was at a baptism of 35 Iranian and Afghan Whoa. people, which that kind of is where this whole idea of like seeing the gospel work 
mm-hmm. um, became really, really significant for me. And so there was a guy who was leading that group and doing discipleship with them and going and they would meet at a coffee shop upstairs at a coffee shop every Sunday in a city called Wiesbaden. And this man, great guy, ended up being someone I worked with a lot, but he had a heart attack uh, and really almost um, almost died. And uh, I look at our preaching schedule after that happened, and my name is written in for this group to be their preacher and like leader in just indefinitely. It's just Danny, 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 Danny. And so every Sunday I started going out to Wiesbaden from Frankfurt and preaching from English into Farsi, probably wildly ineffective, like in terms of content discipleship, but I just began to form really, really deep relationships. And so that was April of 2019 that I started doing that. And then I was the point person for leading that group for, uh, for about two years before I handed it off. Wow. Um, and, and then that um and i don't know how i escaped germany without being totally burnt out um it was probably all the cheap vacations you can do in europe but um (laughs) a few months later the german-speaking church that was the original church in action they didn't have a pastor and um our leaders came to us and were like would you want to pastor this church and we were like i don't know and they were like wait you're 23 you don't really speak German yet, that would be a really stupid idea. <laughs> um, so we were like, okay. And then two weeks later, they came back and they're like, you're our last option. Um, <laughs> and so um, they, they asked us to do it. And we were actually really struggling with the transition at this time. Mm-hmm. It was totally in culture shock, homesick, not really knowing where our place was in ministry. Um, like obviously doing cool stuff with the refugee work, but just struggling to fit in in some ways. And we just felt once again, that gentle, like prodding of the Lord. And so, uh, we met with the church in July and they were meeting in a coffee shop that they owned. And then also doing some work with people who are homeless meeting in another Lutheran space, every, uh, Lutheran church every two weeks. And, um, had a good team and a good group of people there and they were really pretty much saying we'll teach you german we'll 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 integrate you we'll be home for you and you know you lead us and take care of us and so august uh right after i turned 23 we we had our first service with them and that really became the like center of our work in germany so we led that church for four years um had some of the the lowest lows and also had some of the most beautiful experiences in ministry mm. um, and then ended up uh, handing that off um, when we moved home. And um, very excitingly, it was taken over by the first team that we formed to lead it. Um, and they became the pastors of it, which was, wow. was super exciting. So that was our journey in Germany and um, really, really loved working with Church in Action. Um, they're doing really good work and we're starting to get moody. Um, they're doing really good work and yes. really important work in the Nazarene Church of figuring out how do we reach post-Christian cities? Obviously, the Nazarene Church started in cities, um, but how do we get back into them? How do we reach them? And especially young adults, young, young urban 
post-Christian, not growing up in the church people, what does the gospel even mean for them? And so what really was formative about this time for me was I was helping, I was helping people who left Islam think about what the gospel was in who are from countries who've had no major church movement in over a millennia. Wow. And then working with Germans who'd left the church or church was kind of an archaic tradition that had no real more meaning for their life. And then trying to think about what does the gospel mean for them hmm. and how do you disciple those two groups and those experiences trying to pray into that and study and think and struggle. Honestly, a lot of it was just obedient struggle. Um, that, that was so formative for me in, in being a pastor and a leader, um, really kind of marked my life and what I'm passionate about, what I want to do. Um, and really framed up for me how I think about the gospel today. Um, so yeah. I'm, as I'm listening to you, uh, the obedient struggle yes. of gr grappling with the gospel seems to be yes. an emerging theme. Yes, 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 yes. So this wrestling with what is it that we speak to people and preach to people and invite people into. And the church has always done its best work when they've had to figure out how to translate that into a new culture and a new tongue and a new time. Um, and those those spaces in, in believers from Muslim backgrounds and then kind of in the post-Christian West, um, it was just constantly, what is this and what does it mean for them? It lost a lot of its familiarity, familiarity to me, which was probably the greatest gift is Jesus began to be very strange to me because I was getting to know him through the eyes of people who had never thought about him. So, wow. Okay. Give, give me, give me a linear timeline from when you graduated in India, what year was that? So graduated in May of 2016. Oh, we might need to pause and revisit that question. That's okay. Give me, give me like five minutes to throw her in the chest pack and get her asleep. Yeah. Okay. I'll be right back. Cool. Yep. I'll just pause it. We'll stay on. Wait. Okay. You were giving a linear timeline of when you graduated in 2016. Maybe backtrack a step. Got married after my junior year, August 15th. Ended up accidentally being that Nazarene couple who got married really early on paper. Um, was not our full intention. Graduated May of 2016. Felt called to Germany July of 2016. Moved to Germany January of 2017 and then moved home. I moved home. Well, we did. I moved home a little later in August of 2021. Nothing happened in the U.S. between 2017 and 2021. So like I didn't miss anything culturally, like nothing happened, you know. It's got me wondering what your experience was like navigating a global pandemic in Germany. So Germany, um, I mean, it had restrictions even after we left, there were two six month periods where you could not meet in a group bigger than five people who could only represent two households. So Taylor and I could meet with our friend, John, but if John lived alone, we couldn't also meet with Sarah because that would be three households. We couldn't gather as a community for about two, five to six month periods. And then e even at the end of some of those periods, um, even at the end of some of those periods, 
we could only do a socially distanced 45 minute service. And then, so we had those six month pause, it opened up, closed, opened up. And, and uh, the last three months before we left Germany, things opened up quite significantly. So we were able to transition like really well. It was just kind of quick. And somehow, strangely, miraculously, our small church uh, grew during that time. Wow. Um, which I have no idea how that happened. We, other than uh, we served a lot of people who were homeless or experiencing homelessness uh, or who had. And we got some projects approved by the city during the pandemic because the 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 homeless population got really hit by, hard by the pandemic because hmm. a lot of their resources were taken away or not able to be there. So we started a food distribution, um, actually hired a social worker onto our staff as a church. And so we got approved for that by the city. Um, and then we needed like everyone in our church to help with that. We would still get together every Sunday as a church, but it would be for an hour food distribution. Um, but we started having 60, 70 people sometimes come to that with wow. like 15 to 20 helpers from the church. And then a lot of those people, when we would reopen, became a part of the church. Honestly, it was some of the best times in our church in terms of that that space. You know, doing service on Zoom and all of that was really difficult. Uh, but um, and then, yeah, going long stretches of just kind of being isolated. So it was much more closed up than even some of the like L.A. and New York places. Um, we were really locked down, um, you know. A couple, I mean, part of those like phases were like one to two months of like barely seeing anyone. Like the initial what? phase was like totally shut down. And it really, I mean, we grew in some ways. We also lost some people. The church that we handed off at the end of the pandemic had lost some people and gained some people. Um, so it had a different feel to it. Um, we had started pre pandemic doing a lot of more work for how can we incorporate families into our church's life. So being a church that meets in a coffee shop in the evening, targeting like university students, being a church that is like spending a lot of time with people who are addicts, homeless, sometimes, um, as a parent now. Um, parents were like, that's not easy to bring a kid into. And we didn't have resources or capacity for kids ministry. I really wanted us to become a church where families could live into that vision with their kids. And we were growing in that pre pandemic, um, church, we were growing more families were engaging that vision. Um, and the pandemic really hurt the family piece. Mm. Um, uh, that really changed some things that we've been working on, although it has kind of now the young people who came to the church during the pandemic got married and have had kids. So now they actually have more kids than we ever had, which is awesome. Um, you but, grew the church quotation marks. They grew that. Yes, yes, oh. yes. So, um, so oh, it was challenging, but it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a much different context to go through the pandemic than most of was, my U.S. friends. What was it as politically charged in Germany as as it was in the U.S.? Not not nearly. There, as the pandemic went on, there were more people who were frustrated with the tight regulations. Yeah. Um. And then, 
as there is kind of a rise of populism in the US, that also happened in a lot of other places in Europe um, in a way that was like maybe a bit more startling. Uh, and so there were some kind of far left, far right polemics in Germany, but not to the degree that you would see in, in the US at that time. I, I had a person tell me that it's somebody I care about and um, respect to this day. But in the midst of that, like leading up to the 2020, no, not 2020. Yeah, 2020 election, US election. That once the election happened, we wouldn't be hearing about the pandemic anymore. Because right. this, is, this is fabricated by a specific political agenda. And right. I was like, you do realize it's it's a global pandemic. It's not ge right. geolock to um, Washington yeah. D.C. Uh, or anywhere else, really. So that yeah. that was that was weird for me because I I mean, totally from the U.S. But I've lived a couple of different places, and so I've been shaped by that. And so when I'm talking with people from those places. And they're looking at the U.S. and they're going, love your neighbor stuff. Think about other yeah, people besides I mean, yourself and your own rights. Like, don't we give up our rights as Christians? And now here we, totally. I mean, it was just, it was this really weird soup of being a Christian and in that setting. So I wondered what it was like for my, and I was, like I said, I was talking with some people from around the world during that time, but your experience as an American citizen, as an expat in a Western cultural context, and then you know, you, you know, navigating that is really interesting to me. Um, I don't want to yeah. get like all caught up in that, but if you had anything more no. to share, I'd love to yeah. hear it. I think that Europe always has ups and down, up and down views of the U.S. And depending on what country you're in in Europe, um, obviously Western Europe has an interesting relationship with the U.S. over the last hundred years, um, specifically a country like Germany. So I think that there's a lot of political tensions five to 10 years ago several European countries only thought were happening in the US. So per particularly the polarization of the left and the right. It's not like that isn't happening in other like liberal democracies or social democracies throughout the world. But I think Europe kind of looked at the way that we argue or the way that we are polarized and kind of said that's a, it's a classic somewhat overly emotional American issue. They just, they have eight political, eight, nine political parties in Germany. They have like much lower campaign budgets. So there's just a different kind of approach. Mm -hmm. But then in, yeah, 2018, 2019, specifically in Germany, there was kind of a rise of a populist movement on the right um, that kind of mimicked some of the rhetoric of some of the right uh, uh, on, that. in the US. The, jo <laughs> the jokes from our German friends and the like quizzical... Like what is going on over there? Questions. Those all ceased when that group gains uh, a level of power, political power and influence. Because, and what we began to see throughout the world in that time was the rise of populism in a ton of liberal democracies. And that this isn't just an American issue. Um, this is almost an issue in the Western world. Mm. And actually it became a really important part in preaching the gospel. Um, this is not a, well, this is important. Uh, yeah. I'll just go on this tangent. I want to hear it. I um, want to hear it. So Leslie Newbegin, great missionary theologian, was in India for like 40, 50 years from the 30s to the 70s. 
as an older man, him and his wife drive a bus back from India to the UK. And he essentially has this observation that the UK that he left, which was much more married to Christendom, optimistic toward the church, not without conflict, but was a Christian nation. He comes back in the 70s, and it's essentially what he would call post-Christian. It's totally secular. And he begins to grapple with what will the Western world turn into when it abandons the Judeo-Christian worldview and becomes post-Christian? And how will what does the church need to become to reach that post-Christian culture? So he talks about the church being a missionary church, becoming a missionary to your own culture. But he has this interesting kind of uh, tangent and discussion. I forget what book it's in, but he talks about people are always going to worship something. In the Western world, when you pull God and the transcendent out, people are still going to find people are still going to find something to worship. And what he talked about was we're going to see the return of what he called the political religions. Mm. That when you pull out God as a as an object of worship and you begin to create a post-Christian secular life where you're creating meaning without any kind of story of a transcendent being, you're going to probably, rather than finding God to worship because you've abandoned that, you are going to either begin to worship yourself or you're going to begin to worship someone. And that someone that we tend to worship when we don't worship God is a political leader. A strong man. And a strong man. And so the rise of populism in Western Europe and the U.S., I think is directly linked to us becoming more and more post-Christian, which is really important, right, with young adult ministry, uh, you know, as people, especially young adults in cities who are so caught up in political parties, that's where a lot of loyalty and time is going and a lot of thought is going is realizing that part of that is connected to the loss of like transcendence in their life. And how do we reconnect them to an experience of God that will give them a different place to put their affections and loyalty than whatever talking head is on media or is at the forefront of our country. Um, And so there's a deep connection there. And that's, that's interesting. That's interesting to me. I just want to, I before I lose this, because I will lose it, it's yeah. startling to me because the that compare that observation yeah. makes makes me think about the people that I hear talking about populist strongmen. And if if Newbegin's um hypothesis there is that they're in a post-Christian context. There will be a return to a a politic and a political leader that becomes the hope, that becomes the salvation. These are words I'm using, not that you used about New Begin. Christians, the far right and and evangelical Christians are leading the charge in the rhetoric towards that from my observations, which is then accelerating the process of post-Christianity becoming a reality. Correct. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, it's centrifugal. It's each well, one's and, on the and, other one. Yep. And so then what has happened is either a lot of evangelicals have swung now to the democratic party and have fully latched on there, 
um, or they've left church. And so there's a way in which the more we feel like we need to extend loyalty to a certain figure, and, and I think there's a healthy amount of like loyalty to country and love of country. Like there's a healthy way of doing that as a Christian. But the more that we, the more that we take on a rhetoric that this person or this system or this law is going to save us, the more that we, the, that, the more we do that, the more we are invigorating the post-Christian pull of culture. Wow. So that, so that actually the church, when it goes that way, is making its mission harder. By doing precisely the thing that many of us, many of us in the church think will achieve our mission of conforming culture to scripture or whatever we think we're doing, actually, the more we give, the more loyalty we give over to a political leader, whether on the left or the right, the more we're taking God's role that he's meant to play in our life and we're minimizing it. And the more we minimize that role that God is to play in our life, the more we are going to produce a post-christian culture and so mike mike drop moment um right and so what has happened over the last four or five years i mean gen z is doing some in some ways better they're not leaving church as quickly as millennials i think but a lot of people like i talked to um you know i talked with people who supported us in germany who who have left christianity because of the last four or five years and they're part of, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, they're part of what they call like deconstruction communities, uh, which is a super interesting phenomena. Essentially, people who used to be Christian, who probably live fairly Christian looking lives, but are totally done with Christianity as it's organized or typically thought about. And so they're like almost creating churches for people who have become agnostic. And that is for them really rooted in things they saw in the church over the last four to five years. But is that a loss of faith in Christ or, yeah, or just, no, uh, this is like, this is not just leaving church. This is like people who've told me they've left Christianity because, and here's the contradiction is the people who seem most strict about the gospel and scripture have become often the groups that are calling for more and more loyalty to a political party. And so I think some people are seeing actually Christianity makes you more and more of like this political animal, like like seeing a direct line between faith in Christ and a certain kind of politics. And so they, it's not just leaving the church. It's like, actually, it's because people believe these funky things about the Bible that they did this. So we need to actually get rid of scripture itself. And the, the, the irony is that they look and, and see from a deconstructed point of view, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be that because that's their allegiance. But the Christian, right. the Christian that's holding those views and has a political perspective that's so wrapped up in their, their faith that they can't separate the two. They don't know how to do that. They don't know how to have one without the other. Right. I I think it's a it's a loss of first allegiance. Like in our yeah. baptism, we made our allegiance very clear to Christ and the kingdom of God. But that allegiance is getting co-opted right. by a political leader without them maybe even consciously knowing it, understanding it or being able to separate the two, thus accelerating post post-Christian culture and 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 then complaining about it. 
but they're part right. of the problem. Like we're creating our own problem that we don't know how to solve. Right, right. Wow. And I think this, the startling thing growing up in a more, uh, you know, conservative Christian kind of American culture for me is that in, in both sides in American politics, I see things that look like the kingdom of God and I see things that look like the opposite. Mm-hmm. But I think, I don't think, in I, I don't think in the in the left in the last 10 to 15 years there has been much of a, a attempt to be this overtly christian party in some sense like the left has felt post-christian for a while secular for a while and the right would the, say, yeah yeah a really really long in, time and that's the problem in, in the rhetoric right yeah but i yeah. think the, the difficult thing for the church um and just navigating politics as an american is as an, as a Christian who is American, is that in many ways it feels like the right has now taken on a post-Christian or an unhealthy Christian rhetoric. Um, and so the, that there isn't really a party that I feel like obviously conforms to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And in some ways there never was, but the rhetoric maybe made you think there was. But now I think if you have a genuine reading of the gospel as Jesus being Lord, God is King, the rhetoric on both sides has become really difficult to reconcile with that. And even if we tend one way or another, and there are good Christians I love and know who vote one way or the other. Um, and I think to some degree, we have to figure out how to engage. I think yeah. the issue is, is that the increased call for loyalty on both sides crosses a bound, like a principal boundary of being a Christian to like going from we engage our politics to where we give our primary allegiance and time and energy. And I think both both sides have called for that. And whenever the church crosses that boundary, we damage ourselves and we give people a good reason to leave uh, because we, we compromise the core of the gospel, which is right. First Samuel, God is king. God, you know, it's not it's not you. They've rejected Samuel. It's me. They've rejected. It wasn't it and, wasn't God's idea to set up a king. That's the right. People. Right. And America isn't. And a we theocracy. keep doing it. We keep calling right. for it. Jeez. America, yeah. America isn't a theocracy, right? But the church is a theocracy. The church is its own theocracy. It's its own political entity. And we betray God's kingship when we give too much allegiance. And there's a gray area in that of just trying to be a responsible member of your country. But then there, there is like a heart line that you cross. And I think the heart line is if your allegiance to a party causes you to hate the other side, Mm -hmm. when you can no longer agree in the way that you're being told to agree and obey, love your enemies, a line has been crossed. That means the church has now brought in a competitor to our King. And I think, I think that tendency, that tendency is, is, hitting the fast forward button in our North American context, in the American con, in the US context, that tendency in our political rhetoric right now has hit the fast forward button on the process of becoming post-Christian. And so where when I left Germany reflecting on culture, I was like, the US felt 20, 25 years behind Europe. And now I feel like in a matter of four years, we're now five years behind. And you think the pandemic helped accelerate that well because it surfaced, uh, helped accelerate it more because it's i think it's surface things that were right that were there just it happened quick it brought it yeah fast i think i think a genuine reading of the new testament if you're really reading the new testament in context and you're realizing that the gospel has a, a political side a social side a spiritual side it is i think in the imagination of the church this was not necessarily true 
there were spaces in culture that no longer felt that did not feel like they were in conflict with being a Christian, right? In, in the U.S., there was cultural spaces that didn't feel like they were in conflict. Didn't feel doesn't mean they weren't. But with where the church was at and where culture was at, there were spaces where you really felt like, oh, these two fit. And now I feel like at, when you're genuinely talking about the gospel, there's less and less space, cultural space in the U.S., where it feels like we're not in some level of competition and disagreement, which means the church has to go within itself to become its own culture, its own entity, rather than mimicking one or the other. And I think I think that confusion is what drives people to become post-Christian, especially young adults. And so it's the recapturing of a preaching of the gospel that's genuinely not even just the middle way, but a different way that I think is is really, really critical, right? Like it, we have to change some of our strategies and tactics for the new world that we're in, where there's a lot more push and pull on all sorts of sides. Whereas I think we're still sometimes using tactics that fit for Christendom and they fit for a culture that feels Christian. So the way we use our time when we're much more closer, if not already there, especially in our cities in the U.S., to being in a place like Europe where the church has to become a missionary again. And that that watching things play out here while being in that culture over there really opened my eyes to those dynamics. This is I, didn't, I didn't know I didn't know we were going to go here. I didn't know we were going to land here either. I don't but know. I'm really glad that we did, Danny. The, I really enjoy this conversation. And, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the one that just said, "Hey, politically, tell me about the how how it was no, you're good. during the pandemic." But I I think these are things they they hold bearing on who we are as followers of Christ, what our posture of mission is in our context and in our communities, and what it means to journey totally. alongside young adults. Um, and deconstruction has become a buzzword for people um, within the church that are operating from a basis of fear. Um, totally. and I've even, I've heard the term recently de-evangelize and I'm not really sure what that means. I don't know if they yeah. meant deconstruction, but have you ever heard anybody use that de de-evangelize? I like, have not heard that, that term. It's like I'm, I'm de-good nudie, good newsing you. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I think for some, like, and part of, part of what this comes back to, and I see this in, right. I think part of, part of having these discussions is I think in preaching and in ministry, we need to help young adults understand the kind of subterranean elements of culture that we're caught up in that are making them want to leave, right? And that's why these cultural discussions are important mm. because it's these structures and systems and tendencies right now that are causing people to want to leave. Uh, and we could get into social media and the authority of the self and all of that. But I think it's really important. It's almost like as preachers and pastors and leaders, we got to excavate why this is happening. And then we need to look toward scripture, toward Jesus, toward the gospel, to like what element of the gospel is going to speak into why people are leaving, right? And so I think preaching the gospel as a, and understanding the church as its own politic, as its own way of doing life together, as its own way of making the world better, has to be one of the critical pieces of what we preach and teach and live out. And it was, you know, one of the more attractive things for young people in Germany was that the church was not just a dispenser of religious goods, but the church itself was its own strategy for transforming the world. Hmm. Um, and I think that was captivating for people because a lot of people are a lot of people are leaving because they don't think the church is capable of doing that whereas so, there's so many churches who are doing that they don't get a lot of like airtime but i think more and more churches need to understand that 
the gospel speaks to us very personally, but as the church, we're called to participate in the big mission of God to renew all things. And I think that renewal of all things and the living out of the gospel politically, socially, emotionally, personally, that shows people, oh, this, this gospel can do something. It can actually change the world around me rather than just being an avenue for inner fulfillment that you can kind of do on your own now because of media, because of entertainment. You can like fill yourself enough to never make you deal with the fact that there's a leak in the ship of your heart. You can, there's just really good ways of plugging that hole. So you never feel like we're constantly leaking fulfillment and meaning, but there's so much content available to numb yourself to that. Um, mm. And so I think, I think the church has to do, has to pr present itself in its most widest version of itself in terms of a gospel that speaks to all things, a gospel that speaks to all things in all peoples, in all places, because people people don't realize what they're missing, wow. which kind of gets back to where we started. This has been great. I'm not going to keep you and I and and Iona or Iona. How do you say it? Iona. Iona. I'm not going to keep you and Iona. I'm grateful for your time. I, I've been wondering how, what best describes the conversation we've been having? Have we been deconstructing deconstruction? Have we been excavating hey, deconstruction? What have we been doing? I then? would be more happy. I think I think deconstruction needs to get deconstructed. Uh, I think that would be really helpful for the church to unfold why this is happening and then to realize that maybe we don't need to deconstruct as much as reconstruct what went wrong. Mm. There's a lot of construct words there, but... Um, what I don't see happening a lot in the church is us asking why we're deconstructing. And was it, are we taking out our frustration on our doctrine when actually, if you follow Orthodox Christian doctrine, it should lead you away from the things that we've been getting into. Wow. Um, right. So, um, there are some things that people are rejecting that the church laid down as our doctrine to keep us from doing things that we are doing. And the issue isn't that we always need to leave all of these things. There's things we can always be asking about and asking good questions, but there are some things that we are trying to leave behind that if we leave them behind, they're going to leave us vulnerable to other things that we also don't think are good. And part of the issue is not our doctrine as much as we just haven't lived our doctrine. We've been living someone else's doctrine. So we can deconstruct deconstruction as much let's, as we want. Let's keep at it. I'm glad I'm glad we're going to be working on something together here with young adults that we can we can stay in conversation. But this is a lot for today, man. I'm excited to listen back through this and, and get it out there on the Yamcast. And appreciate yeah. you sharing your um, your journey and how, you know, just a little bit about how you've been shaped, how you guys have been shaped and what the Lord's been teaching you through that. Right. I'm, I'm trusting the Lord and his spirit to use that to encourage and inspire and, and, um, help other young adult leaders like me and you, um, as we're forging a path together in community. So thank you. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Kenny. All right, brother. Take I'll care. talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. See ya.